Yes. Phone ready. It looks like ready to <laughs> yes. read. So are we ready for a countdown? I suppose. Are we recording? I don't know how to count. Yeah, we got your mic bump. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> got that just fine. Yeah. No, I'm a, my new glasses. This is a breeze. Ooh. This is awesome. I can see. It's a miracle. So all four of us are wearing glasses for the first time. No. No, I've been wearing them since my freshman year. I've been wearing them for three or four years. I've been wearing mine since I was eight or something like that. The award for worst vision in the podcast goes to Cash. <laughs> Have you seen those lenses? Shall Shall we count it down? One, two, three, four, five. Oh, you're going the when wrong you, direction. When, when you say we, you mean me? Yeah, you pretty much. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. <coughs> Tom's done. <coughs> so Tom's done coughing. Yeah. For now. Well, it seems better than last week. Anything's better than last week. <laughs> I bet. It's going around and staying in my office armed with Lysol. All right, I'm counting down. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Irv Miller from Miller's Stamp Company, and you're listening to Stamp Show here today. Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Now, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Homer, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like people actually watch this show, I was I was actually pretty surprised. I'm Ernest Borgnine. I collect stamps. From Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a planet from Poland, but none from Sudan or from Fiji or Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Welcome to Stamp Show Here Today, episode number 97. I'm Cash. My monthly update on the Y2K crisis is, at this time, there is no change. Wow. Where's the crickets? <laughs> I'm Scott. I'm not, even, I'm not even set up for that yet. I'm so early. This is Tom. <laughs> And I'm your host, Dawn. And yes, we had a debate last Wednesday, and they discussed the economy and immigration, but the real topic was not addressed. The poor design of U.S. postage stamps. Um, actually, I think Hillary said that the rich need to use more stamps, and Trump said he's going to build a wall to keep Mexican stamps out. So there was that. Well, how about we keep crappy stamps out of our stamp program? Yep. <laughs> 
This week we'll be discussing perforate. Perforated? The Rough Riders? What? <laughs> Take two. This week we'll be discussing perforation gauges and Harvey's house. Isn't Harvey an invisible rabbit? Anyway, on this day in history. Wait a minute, I can't read this. Can you hold this up to the light? Okay. In 1879, 137 years ago today, Thomas Edison invents the light bulb. Well, let's see about that. In 1802, Humphrey Davy invented the first electric light when he connected wires to his battery and a piece of carbon. The carbon glowed and produced light, but it didn't produce it for long, and it was much too bright for practical use. And then there was Warren De La Rue, who put a coiled platinum filament in a vacuum tube and passed an electric current through it. Although an efficient design, the cost of the platinum made it impractical for commercial production. In 1850, an English physicist named Joseph Wilson Swan created a light bulb by enclosing carbonized paper filaments in an evacuated glass bulb. And by 1860, he had a working prototype for lack of a good vacuum. In 1874, a medical electrician named Henry Woodward and a colleague, Matthew Evans, built their lamps with different sizes and shapes of carbon rods held between electrodes in glass cylinders filled with nitrogen. Woodward and Evans attempted to commercialize their lamp, but were unsuccessful. They eventually sold their patent to Edison. So in 1879, Edison did whatever he did, and so he is famous, and Humphrey Davy, well, you can say... Well, he, we, we, a little known fact is he is the co-inventor of the tube sock. So there is that. Seriously, every episode? Every single one that oh I can put God. it in. And it did happen today. Whatever it is, it happened today. So a little known fact is that the one set green Ben Franklin stamp of 1901, well, little kids on the left and right of the stamp design, they are holding light bulbs. Really? Yep. Listener emails. So we get emails at Stamp Show here today. So summon the answer squad. Our first one is from Ken. I have a never hinged stamp with light pencil mark on the gum. How does this affect the grade? Well, generally, if it's very, very light, um, usually it can be erased. I uh, would be very careful erasing it because if you generate any heat with your eraser, it's going to disturb the gum. So you kind of want to use a, a gum eraser. This is, these are the type of eraser. They're art erasers, and they're the type that architects would use on drawings and things like that. They're generally white. You can get them. Pentel usually has the little clicky ones that uh, have. Uh, they look like a pencil. And those work okay, but be very careful. And uh, like I said, don't generate any heat. If you can't get the mark off or if it actually impresses into the, the gum or the paper, the stamp, then it's going to definitely be a deduction. If it's a never hinge stamp, it'll be mentioned. If it's a hinge stamp, it probably won't be mentioned and may not have a deduction for it so but usually it's a usually it's a one grade deduction 
uh, possibly two grades if it's really heavy and a large mark. Yeah, and again, if you, the reason why he said don't generate heat is because if you leave a mark on the gum, that can be construed as being hinged at that time, even though well, it's not actually hinged. Well, technically it's not hinged. What it is is it's a disturbed, disturbed spot, gum. and yeah. depending on how extensive it is, can be anywhere from one to three grades. Yeah. So it could potentially make it worse. So just be very careful. And that if you're going to do something like that on a, on a more expensive item, I would get some inexpensive ones in practice first. I like the fact that you use a gum eraser to erase pencil and try not to erase the gum with the gum eraser. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, don't you deserve Don't look at me that. like that. You deserve that. I was <laughs> right. You said it. I'm just stating the obvious. There's Welcome the to Stamp Collecting Month. <laughs> Our next email is from Ray. Hi, Scott. I was doing some work for the November issue of 100J and noted that there were some valuation increases in the Pan American series. One of note was the 10 cent issue in grade 98J in H. It doubled in price from $10,000 to $20,000. Were these increases based on recent auctions like the Siegel Hanover Collection Part 2? Absolutely. Um especially when we're dealing with stamps of an, in a, that are unique in a grade, I will ultimately watch for those to appear in uh, auctions. And I will try and find out whether it was a dealer or a collector that bought it. Obviously, if it's a dealer, there has to be room in the SMQ price for the dealer to sell it and make money so that he can feed his family. Um, and if it's a collector, same thing, but at the same time, the collector is not going to try and resell it right away. And so I can be a little less optimistic with the pricing. But yes, uh, that uh, Scott number 299 in grade 98J is unique. It was purchased by a collector, and since it's unique, the fair market value is then whatever he paid. And so the SMQ then reflects that. And the st SMQ stands for Stamp Market Quarterly. But why don't you go over a little bit where the prices in the Stamp Market Quarterly come from? Well, the Stamp Market Quarterly prices come, they're, they're designed to be uh, market pricing. And when you're buying stamps, that is a guide for the buyer and for the seller as to what's a fair price, what those stamps are actually going for. And... I search through auctions, websites, price lists, uh, anything any dealer wants to advertise. I see uh, net sale catalogs. I see all sorts of stuff on the internet, everything from eBay to personal websites with items for sale. And I look at prices realized when I can. I look at asking prices which are a little more iffy uh, some, uh, or shall we say optimistic on the part of the seller. Uh, but obviously if a dealer has a track record and he's selling pretty much stamps that are in a, a grade where there's a number of items known and he's continually increasing his price because he can't keep the item available then obviously then the SMQ price is going to increase. Uh, 
but if at the same time I see these things sitting on his website month after month after month and they're not selling well then either there's one of two things happening there's no market for it or his price is too high and those are things I have to kind of consider based on experience in the market and uh, input from collectors and dealers when I speak with them and I ask them what they're looking for and things like that so it's uh it's can be a very time-consuming project to value these things also again let me remind everyone to subscribe to the online 100j newsletter by ray lieberman at i'm going to spell this l-i-e-b-e-r-r-a at comcast.net it's free our next email is spam from the canadian post it starts. Welcome to our final installment of the Haunted Canada series. Ooh. Wait. Yay. <laughs> no, I like <laughs> Canadian stamps. They do good stamps. Yes, Jens. Yay. Mm-hmm. That's happy. That's not boo. No, it says final installment. I don't want this to be the final installment. I'm just happy that they have a Haunted Canada series. Yeah, that's true. That is kind of cool. Okay, yes. More like ghosts. Boo. They, <laughs> it's the final installment. Aww. Aww. With Halloween around the corner, these five new spooky stories will make your hair raise and give you chills. Check out the scary goods stamps and collectibles plus seasonal coins from the Royal Canadian Mint. Yeah, this is a... It, it, Canada just makes such great stamps. Well, Star you, Trek. They, they make great coins, too. I mean, I... Yeah. When I when I bought all their Star Trek stamps, I bought all their Star Trek coins too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've pretty much got the whole set, the two sets that I ordered now. But they are really great looking coins. You know what would be great is if Linz, instead of having the best stamps of 2016, if they had of the United States, they had the best stamps of United States and Canada of 2016. Yeah, but there and wouldn't it, be any U.S. stamps. It, yeah, no, it'd all be Canada. <laughs> it would all be Canada. It would all be Canada. So this is their final installment, and we couldn't even get one zombie. We got four <laughs> jack-o'-lanterns. <sighs> yeah, we Isn't did. one of them running for president? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's, that's the fifth one. <laughs> that's what are I these, thought, too. These are actually descriptions of the stamps, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. Yeah, they are. And the stamps are cool. No, we just, we never said that. Well, let's talk about the ghost of Banff Springs. Opened in 1888 to accommodate guests traveling the Canadian Pacific Railroad, the Banff Springs Hotel was one of the top three mountain resorts. In the 1930s, the hotel was frequented by celebrities and royalty and became known as Canada's Castle in the Rockies. It is also frequented by, quotey fingers, Sam the ghostly bellhop who retired in 1967, but vowed to return to the hotel he loved. He tends to favor the ninth floor, although he has been spotted elsewhere, offering to help guests with their bags, letting people into their rooms if they've been locked out, and disappearing as soon as someone speaks to him or offers a tip. Cool. (laughs) But the most famous ghostly tale originates on a now blocked off stairway. In the 1920s, a young woman descended the stairs on her wedding day when the heel of her shoe caught on the long train of her wedding dress. Sadly, she slipped and tumbled down the stairs to her death. Guests and hotel employees 
I've seen her dancing the wedding waltz in the gloom of the night. Ooh, spooky. It is. Yeah. She's dancing in the ballroom. Well, that sounds like Freddy Krueger dragging his blades across <laughs> a pipe. That doesn't sound like dancing. It's that heel. The I world's worst tap dancing or something. <laughs> Our next story is the Dungarvan Hooper. When I read that the first time, I thought it said Whopper. And I'm so thinking, did I. What? Are they advertising for Burger King now with a special haunted <laughs> burger? It's well, Canada. It doesn't mean that be said. Well, this one down. is a guy with an axe over a cauldron, and out of the cauldron is a gl- ghostly hand reaching. You up. know what would be really cool? If they screamed when you tore off the backing paper. <laughs> <laughs> That would be cool. The Dungarvan Whooper was the cook at a logging camp near the Dungarvan River. He kept his life savings in a money belt that he wore at all times. One winter morning, in the thin light of day, the loggers tramped off to the woods. When they returned, they found the cook lying dead on the floor, his money belt gone. The camp boss claimed... The cook had suddenly taken ill and died. While a snowstorm raged that night, the lumberjacks buried the cook in a shallow grave at Dungarvan Springs. To this day, people in the area still hear the whoops of the Dungarvan whooper when they are outside around dusk. Scary stamps. Now it's time for Stamp Show here today, Museum Contribution. As we stated last podcast, we are redoing hashtag stamp stories. From now on, we are building a museum of the stamps we discuss. If you have a stamp and a story to contribute, email us and you can tell your story on the podcast. Our museum contribution for this podcast is a pair of postcards, both with railway postmarks and both showing the famous Harvey House. beginning railroads carried freight as time went by though the people wanted to ride the rails to far away places like Baltimore or northern Baltimore trains were great at a blistering 20 miles per hour they were much better than walking because you could sit down don't be fooled though train travel was an ordeal the railroad companies loved freight it just stood there and it didn't complain Passengers, though, well, they had to eat and hope, both which were major concerns for the early railroad owners. Before the inclusion of dining cars in passenger trains, a rail passenger's only option for meal service and transit was to patronize one of the roadhouses, often located near the railroad's water stops. A hearty meal of old meat, cold beans, and bad coffee was always at hand. Actually, most pa- passengers at this time, all the way up to uh, the 1920s, they brought their own food on. And 
it wasn't uncommon for you to see people coming on with baskets of food and cooking in the seats. As a matter of fact, a lot of the railway fires that everybody talks about in the history books, a lot of those fires were actually caused by people cooking in the cars as opposed to like something actually catching on fire from the operation of the railroad. Yeah, food was a problem. The growth and development of the Harvey House, which was owned by Fred Harvey, became closely related to that of development of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. Harvey opened his first depot restaurant in Topeka, Kansas in January 1876. Railroad officials and passengers alike were impressed with Fred Harvey's strict standards for high-quality food and first-class service. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe gave Harvey free range to make eating houses along most of their routes. By the late 1880s, there was a Fred Harvey dining facility located every 100 miles along the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. It was a great match. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe would send fresh meat and vegetables to the Harvey houses, and the passengers, well, they not only liked it, they loved it. When refrigerator cars came, that was all the better. The Harvey houses served their meals on fine china and Irish linens. It had been suggested that the Harvey houses originated the Blue Plate Special, a daily low-priced complete meal served on a blue pattern china plate. An 1892 Harvey menu mentions them, some 30 years before the term became widespread. At this time, you have to understand that restaurants were not common, and this is actually the first chain of anything that occurred in the United States. A lot of these restaurants where they were opened, people had never been to a restaurant before in their life. There had never been a restaurant in these areas. It was a new experience for people to come and actually sit at a table and have a wait staff person come and actually refill your coffee. That was a new thing. Speaking of wait staff, you have the Harvey Girls. In 1883, Harvey implemented a policy of employing a female white-only serving staff. He sought single, well-mannered, and educated American ladies and placed ads in newspapers throughout the East Coast and Midwest for white young women, 18 to 30 years of age, good character, attractive, and intelligent. The girls were paid $17.50 a month, approximately $444 in $216, plus room, board, and gratuity, a generous income by the standards of the time. In a mythology that has grown around the Harvey houses, these female employees are said to have helped to civilize the American Southwest, as seen in the 1946 MGM musical, The Harvey Girls. Judy Garland was the star of it, and she was actually on a um, famous, what was it, famous artist stamps? Just came out. Uh, well, it's the same series that had the, like, Shirley Temple right. and... Legends of Hollywood? Legends yeah, of Hollywood. that's what that's it was. It. She's in the Legends of Hollywood. Yeah, the Harvey girls were advertised because the Harvey houses were out in the middle of nowhere. Like I said, you know, these were uh, 100 miles along road lines where there wasn't anything. Even along railroad lines, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The rail lines are, were not filled in yet, let's say. And between uh, Missouri and California, you, know, you just had cowboys and stuff like that. So, so the Harvey girls were eligible young ladies and were really 
kind of premium item people when they showed up. They it, were. It wasn't an estimate of like twenty thousand of them married like cowboys and railroad workers and stuff like that. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, they were <laughs> they were uh, a welcome addition to the area, to say the least. Maybe that's why Southwest women are good looking. Uh, Beach Boy song. That would be California girls, of which I am one. How about if they uh, had Harvey House girls? Wish they all could be Harvey House girls. That only in Cash's world. Oh, I like what humorous Will Rogers said about the Harvey girls. He said that Harvey and the Harvey girls kept the West in food and wives. <laughs> Back to the postcards. You can see them on the Stamp Show Here Today Facebook page. And in the museum, mm-hmm. from what I hear. Yes. Yeah, we will be bringing the Stamp Museum wherever we go. When we have a table at a Stamp Show. Even when we don't. <laughs> well, you can carry them then. Because <laughs> I foresee this becoming a large box of items. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. when we hit like our 400th episode, we're going to have to have a hand cart to pull this thing around. Yeah, that'll be your job. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the first postcard is from 1916 and shows the Dodge City Depot with the Harvey House. The postcard, which was sent to Wisconsin, says, We are on the train in Kansas. Hope to see you on the 9th, which is six days from when the card was mailed. Again, we take for granted that trains were fast, but not that fast. It's interesting that they didn't have airmail back then, and they were already on the train, and the postcard likely beat them to their destination. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the mail didn't have to sleep in a restaurant and stop and eat. It just continued on whatever yeah, trains were going west. Yeah, but the trains didn't all stop at night either. The ones with the passengers. A lot of them did. The second one shows the depot and Harvey House and hotel at Trinidad, Colorado. The date isn't seen, but the stamp says 1910 or thereabouts. The card says... Left Denver at 5 o'clock p.m., spent the day there, arrived at Sioux City noon tomorrow. The Harvey houses eventually closed, and there are only a very few that are open today. The company ended in the 1970s, and so all the Harvey houses out there today are not the original company. And why is that? When was the last time you traveled by train? (laughs) Right. Well, first they were at railroad depots, which are not what one would call upscale. Second, trains started to give you food. Third, trains started to go fast. Yeah, and again, these are upscale restaurants with china and wait staffs and tablecloths. So these were high-class areas in places that may have never had a restaurant before, so people went to them. Today... You know, you're sitting there and you go, I want to go to a restaurant. Let's go to Union Station in downtown L.A., which is a pit. (laughs) And uh, we'll go to a fine restaurant there. It's like, I don't think so. So, you know, nowadays there's plenty of restaurants, but we really have to put ourselves in their shoes. That picture wherever you're at, there's only one restaurant and you have probably never been there. And then picture yourself going there. Well, if you'd asked me that when I was a kid, it certainly would have been true because my family never went out to eat. Not even McDonald's once in a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was literally never. And we didn't order pizza and we didn't just, we didn't have the money and we lived out 
in the country on a farm and that's what we had yeah same when i was a kid and i was very young we we only went out for like birthdays or celebrations but it yeah, was, we didn't even go out then it well, was I, at home I had a uh, friend whose father was an attorney, and he started in the early 1970s. That's really when restaurants started. I mean, you always had, like, you know, Sambo's or whatever. But the (laughs) 1970s is when restaurants really started because people had enough money where they didn't eat at home. And we kind of take it for granted today, but there was a time when you ate at home, and that was it. It was a special occasion for you to go to a restaurant. Mm Mm-hmm. And now for Cash's Corrections. What everybody doesn't see is Cash dances every time you play that. <laughs> he bobs his head just like a chicken. Are you kidding me? Uh, absolutely. It's hilarious. <laughs> First of all, Chicago Packs. November 18th through the 20th. We will be there and we hope to meet you all. Uh, hopefully I'll have the Stamp Museum up and running. Uh, the... The Chicago PAX is the 130th annual philatelic exhibition, and they're also going to have at it the Scandinavian Collecting Club, the Military Postal History Society, the American Airmail Society, the Chicago Philatelic Society, the German Philatelic Society, the USPCS Banknote Study Group, and the Illinois Postal History Society. So stop by, visit these people, uh, stop, say hi to us and, you know, we'll be walking around and if you ask somebody for Scott or Cash, everybody knows who we are. They'll point us out. Second, the long intro at the beginning, I worked for about four hours putting that thing together. So I'm going to play the heck out of it. So anybody who's complaining, um, tough. <laughs> you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> Third, I've always liked the 1938 Green, uh, Greenland stamp, Scott number seven. It's a blue stamp and it has a polar bear on it. It's the first issue of Greenland. It's really cool looking. Found some polar bear facts that I thought were pretty cool. Don't eat me. Don't when eat they're me. when they're cold, they turn blue. Yeah, <laughs> everybody thinks that polar bears are so deadly. Um, well, since 2005, there have been eight people killed by polar bears. Four of them were in zoos. So moral, if you, if moral you, of the story, don't get in the polar bear cage. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Somebody comes up and goes, oh, that polar bear is so cute. I'm going to go hug it. And it's... Uh, That's what a bear sounds like, huh? <laughs> That's what a bear sounds like to a parent that has small children. <laughs> but by far, the most dangerous bear is the gummy bear. Absolutely. And that's it. Oh my God, who the hell cares? And our expert topic, the tools of philately, the perf gauge. So Scott, what is a perf gauge? Well, a perf gauge is what we use to measure the number of separations between single stamps in a sheet. Obviously, stamps are printed in large sheets because it's not economical to print them one at a time. And so you have to have some way to separate them. And we've gone way beyond having scissors because, well, people like to do it without actually looking for tools. So we use 
perforations, rouletting, or die cutting, just various means of separation. But we have to have some way to be able to determine differences in these types of separations. Um, not in whether one's a die cut or a roulette or a perforation, but they look different. Some have big holes, some have small holes, some have widely spaced holes, some have very close together holes or slits or wavy lines. And we need to be able to describe that as stamp collectors because sometimes it can be the difference between one issue and another. Uh, real quick, um, I've heard of die cutting, I've heard of perforations, but what is rouletting? Rouletting is um, basically they're like little slits. When you get your electric bill, it's those little slits across the bottom where you get the little pay stub that mm. you can tear off the bottom. It's rouletted across the page to make it easier to tear off right there where they want you to separate it rather than grabbing a pair of scissors or just kind of tearing it naturally. Okay. So it gives you a guide and makes it nice and clean. So stamps are the same way. You want to be able to separate them into single items from a large sheet. And like I said, there's different methods to doing it. Different companies had different methods, different technologies over time. We call this the gauge. It's how many, how many perforation holes, how many perforation tips are in a given length. And that number can vary, whether it's the, the little pieces in the rouletting that are still attached whether it's the perforations on a perforated stamp, whether it's the peaks and valleys on a die cut. If we can measure it, then we can say this is different from something else. And so the standard that we use today is a two centimeter long strip, and then we count how many uh, cyclical variations there are, whether it's peaks or valleys on a die cut, whether it's holes or perforation tips on perforated stamp or the little fuzzy ends at the ends of the slits on a rouletted stamp. We count those and that way we can say, well, this has a, a gate, this gauges so many in that standard two centimeter range. So one thing that I thought was very interesting about, you know, perforation gauges and everything is that perforations everybody takes it you know we take so much stuff for granted that was revolutionary at the time period i mean we get stamps now and we peel them off and we stick them to the envelope well 10 years ago you'd pull them apart well if you were 10 years ago and you were pulling these things apart you just thought well that's normal but actually perforations were invented they were created because like scott said People cut them apart with scissors, and somebody said, "There's got to be an easier way for this." I what got if a good I don't idea. Have my scissors, with yeah. Me. Wonder if I don't have my scissors. So then you have to tear them apart. Well, now you've destroyed the stamp. You're not tearing it equally. You know, the paper is kind of thick. It's a pain in the butt because you know the gum's all sticking to your fingers. So you go, "I don't want to tear these apart." But hold on, maybe I could if there was some sort of help in tearing these apart. So somebody came up with the idea, and actually the idea came up in England. Somebody in England said, let's put little holes in it, and then people would just tear them along the little holes, and somebody else said, hey, that's a great idea, let's see if it works. 
and it did. And then they had problems because they made the holes too close. And then they said, well, let's make them wider. And so they made them really wide and people tore them apart and go, well, now we're tearing into the stamps again, again. So now it's like, wonder if we go, we have too close and too far apart. Let's start experimenting with in between. And so they made them one size and they found out that they were too strong. And when they made the other size and they made out, it was too weak. So they kept going back and forth. And finally they. And this one was just right. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and Goldilocks that, and the three stamps. And that, <laughs> and that turned out to be Perf 12. Well, but also when they experiment with different types of paper, some papers are tougher to tear mm-hmm. and other papers are easier to tear. I mean, if you take a a regular sheet of copy paper and try and tear it versus trying to tear tissue paper or toilet paper, it's totally different. And so while Perf 12 might work for one type of paper, it wouldn't work for another type of paper. So or, that's sometimes how you get differences. Or this. more more appropriately, it's not necessarily the type of paper, but it's how it's printed. Because we went away from Perf 12 pretty quick because the machines that were printing the stamps were tearing the stamps apart. Well, that and the vending machines. And the vending machine. Well, there were many factors involved in that. The The stamps would curl in the drawer, and then the, the postal clerks uh, would have sheets of stamps that were falling apart because they would tend to fall apart at the perforations as it, they curled. And if you remember, everybody had to account this, so you had to count your stamps every day, and now you had whole bunches of little bits of stamps all over your drawer instead of big sheets, which were easier to count. So, I mean, there's all sorts of issues that go into why we change the gauge on our perforations. We've pretty much settled on something right around the 11, Mm -hmm. perf 11, which is basically 11 variations in a two centimeter length. Right, so basically now we have a problem as stamp collectors. We have the early ones that were too close together. We have the later ones that were too far apart. We had all the experimenting in between. How do we tell these apart? Well, the number of perforations in a two two centimeter area, and everybody goes, oh, now I have to know metrics, and I have to count these things? No, you just have to get a gauge. Right, exactly. Somebody invented and said, hey, you don't have to count this stuff. Here's a little piece of plastic. Lay your stamp on it, and it'll tell you what it is. Ta-da! It's, it's basically just like having a reference. You are comparing this standard reference to all these different items. And the perforation gauge usually has multiple different gauges on it so that you don't have to buy 15 different gauges. You just buy one gauge. It's got all these little sections on it, and you can tell... And you can just slide it up and down until you find the one that fits. People who are not familiar with using perforation gauges, and there's a lot of topical collectors that just don't care, which is fine. There's a lot of people out there who just don't care. Probably half our listeners don't care. Right. <laughs> but as you as, as a collector progresses into specializing and things like that, it usually becomes more important to learn how to su- use some of these tools. And the proper way to use it there there's um if you're using a variable gauge which basically 
looks like a bunch of lines and they kind of shoot off at, at slightly different angles. Picture the sun's rays really close together, close to the sun, and then spreading out as it goes away from the sun. Right. And so you just slide it up and down until you, what, what you need to do is you need to pick a point in your perforation hole or on your perforation tip and you need to slide it up and down until those lines intersect at the same point on every single one. And now here's the magic question. We're giving people a whole lot of stuff and everybody's going, why the heck would I possibly ever need a perforation gauge? And the answer is that there is one particular stamp that I'm thinking of that if it lines up on the perforation gauge at one little point, it catalogs 35 cents and if it ca- and if it lines up another point it's worth $240,000. <laughs> so there is a little bit of difference in the value of stamps based on their perforations. Absolutely. But the the whole point it the whole point of this discussion is how to use the perforation gauge, not necessarily why we use it, which I think most people can understand it has to do with value and identification how you use the perforation gauge you want to take you might have say 12 holes in that two centimeter length what you want to do is you want to line up your stamp so that it matches either three holes or three perforation tips on one end or the other and you want to position it and then you want to look across to the other end because you want as much distance to show the small variations because perf 10 perf 11 or perf 11 and perf 12, or perf 11 and a half and perf 12. They are just slightly different. And if you're only looking at a small section, you might not be able to tell the difference. But if you look from one end of the two, mil- two centimeter gauge to the other end for that, then the, the small variation builds over the distance and you can see that it's off. So what you want to do is you want to take three perf tips or perf holes, line them up on your gauge, and then read across to the other side of the gauge for that line. If they match, then you found the right gauge. If they don't match, if they're long, then you need to move down, and if they're short, you need to move up. What he means by line up is the lines go through the perfs at some point. Then you look at the other side, and instead of going through the perfs, it's going through the holes. You know, the lines aren't going through the same part. Right. Now, this is also very useful with reperforated stamps. Right, because if you know that a stamp is supposed to be perforated with gauge 11 or gauge 12, and you put it on there and it doesn't agree, then you start to wonder, well, why doesn't it agree? If it's off a very, very minuscule amount, it might be just something as innocuous as, well, the stamp has been soaked and and it the, the paper relaxed and it's just a hair off. But if it's if it's really off, then I mean if you're looking at a half of a hole long or short, then you have to go, well, you know, this isn't right. It's it's much, much too far and this possibly reperforated and so now I'm going to need to consult and get an expert opinion on whether the stamp is reperforated or not 
although I've seen somewhere, you know, it's supposed to be per 15 and it gauges out at like per 14. And you sit there and go, I don't need an expert. This thing is reperforated. Yes. And we're returning this to the seller. Right. So the first rule in reperforating is really to gauge it and see if it matches up. Right. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing is they are coming out with uh, computer digital perf gauges. And I haven't tried one yet, so I'm going to reserve my comments because whenever you scan something, you change the size of it. So you would have to scan something perfectly to measure it. Well, but they if generally, they, they it, generally have to be calibrated. Yeah. And But if you can, that will give, you know, then you measure it and it's instead of perf 11, it's perf 11 and a quarter. And you go, hmm, I'm going to think, of, yeah, especially, you know, you have four sides of a stamp. Side number one is perf 11. Side number two is perf 11. Side number three is perf 11. Side number four is perf 11 and a quarter. You go, ah, I think we got a reperf here. Well, that's possible, but some countries actually didn't, they were, the quality control wasn't there. And some countries actually have stamps that are different gauges on ran oh, random sides. The United States has that, but it's a red flag. Well, this is one of the three basic tools that you need in stamp collecting. And if you get, you know, Mystic Stamp, I love Mystic Stamps, they give out little beginning stamp collector packages. And in the stamp collector package, they don't give you a pair of tongs, but they give you a magnifying glass and a perf gauge. And those three items, I think, are the most important three tools. And we'll discuss all the tools that we use, but I guarantee you our first three topics are going to be perf gauge, magnifying glass, and tongs. Absolutely. Well, that's about it. So does that answer your question, what's a perf gauge? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Do you now know far, far more than you ever cared about about perf gauges? Absolutely. <laughs> Is there a dead horse at your feet? <laughs> <laughs> Can we whip it some more? <laughs> I guess I need a perf gauge. <laughs> we would like to thank the following for information used in this podcast. Wikipedia, the Canadian Post Office, Backstory with the American History Guys, the Stuff You Should Know podcast, and the Armstrong and Getty radio show. Thank you for joining us for episode 97. This has been Cash, Scott, Tom, and I'm your host, Dawn. You can reach us with your questions or comments at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com, Twitter at stampshowht, or leave a message on our Google Voice number, 1949-873-4298. You can also check out our website at stampshowheretoday.com, or follow us on Facebook, or watch us on YouTube. And as always, keep collecting. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurfs, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today. Hello everyone, my name is David Kugel and I'm one of the co-owners of Daniel F. Kelleher Auctions and Kelleher and Rogers Fine Agent Auctions. We provide boutique auction services to 100% of the philatelic market. All collectors with collections as little as $5,000 to collections reaching well into seven figures. See for yourself at our website, www.kelleherauctions.com. We are the only American-owned international philatelic auction firm 
with offices in the United States, United Kingdom, and Hong Kong. We are also the publishers of the Kelleher's Collector's Connection, already one of the premier magazines in philately with a worldwide circulation. Any collector may subscribe without charge. Call, visit our website, or email us now. Let us work for you. The results will speak for themselves. And you can contact us toll-free in the United States at 877-316-2895. We are so delighted to be one of this podcast hosts today and really, really encourage you to enjoy philately, the hobby that allows one to enjoy life and live longer.